This is the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. On this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Susanna Fessler, Professor of Japanese Studies and Associate Dean in the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of Albany. Dr. Fessler is the author most recently of Anisaki Masaharu's Reception of Leo Tolstoy and His Failed Attempt at Finding the Faith, published in Transcultural Studies in 2018. Dr. Fessler, thank you so much for talking with me today. Well, thank you for inviting me. Often we think of the Meiji period as this time when Japan opened to the West, and we see all sorts of Western things coming into Japan. But you know, we should remember that this opening was as much outwards as it was inwards. And so the Meiji period is also the time when Japanese people are going abroad for the first time, even for the first time in over 200 years. And we all know about the Iwakura mission, but there's, in fact, all sorts of other missions and embassies and students. Uh, and that's not to mention personal leisure travel as well. And in your research, you've examined some of these Meiji period overseas travelers, especially looking at their literary production. So to begin, can you introduce us to some of the writers and some of the travelers that you've been looking at? Yeah, I divide them into three groups, students, which you just mentioned, diplomats like the Iwakura mission, and then sort of an all-encompassing other or miscellaneous category. And those would be, I guess, what you were saying, people who are traveling for leisure. I should say that people who travel for leisure, you don't see very many of them in the early Meiji period. There were financial barriers to that. And so if we're talking about leisure, we tend to be more toward the end of the Meiji. Students could be either officially hired and funded by the Bakfu, or they could be funded by their Han. And in the case of somebody who was sponsored by their Han, they had to really fly under the radar because they weren't supposed to be doing that. So we see them go abroad. They're a little bit harder to research because usually when they went abroad, they went under a pseudonym to protect themselves. And sometimes it was more than one pseudonym. So it's a little hard to dig through quite all of that material. And like I said, they were trying to fly under the radar. What I was looking at was specifically people who traveled abroad, Japanese who traveled abroad to the West. So that includes the United States and Europe. They had to go through other parts of the world to get there. But what I'm really interested in is what they see and what they record when they go abroad. This is a pretty big category of Japanese who go abroad, so I'm limiting it there. And one of the questions that I was really interested in is they are coming from a world, a literary world, where travel literature has been around for centuries. You go all the way back to Tosaniki, for example. And there were established modes in which travel writers were expected to write throughout the ages, all the way into the Tokugawa, sort of the last, one of the last writers to follow that would have been Matsuo Basho, of course. So the question in my mind was, what happens when these Japanese writers go abroad? Do they recreate their travel literature in the mode of traditional travel literature, or do they do something new? So that was the theme of my research. And I discovered, as probably most people would expect, quite a wide variety in terms of what they produced and what their focus was, but I'll try and summarize it very quickly for you. The very earliest travelers 
tend to be overwhelmed by what they see. Of course, I don't think that's too surprising. They're coming out of the Bakumatsu and they're plopping themselves down in Paris or in London or New York City. And what they see is so foreign and so absolutely unfamiliar that it's hard for them to digest it. So those early travel writers tend to write kind of dry, objective accounts of what they're seeing. And in many cases, that's what kind of what they were responsible for doing because they were supposed to be reporting back to whoever had sponsored them in Japan and telling them what the West was like. But then as you move through the Meiji period, you get into the middle of Meiji period and you find a group of travelers who are now a little bit more educated before they hit the road. They kind of know what to expect when they get abroad. They will write about what they see and what they experience with a much more sensitive voice, not the overwhelmed objective voice. And that sensitive voice will know much more about Western culture, Western art and architecture, for example, and it will be informed by all of that and then try to be conveying that back to the Japanese. And the very end of the Meiji period, we see what I had hoped to find the whole time that I was doing my research, and that is the flavor of traditional Japanese literature coming back to the scene. So uh, let me back up here just briefly and say, what was I looking for? Well, in traditional Japanese travel literature, the travelers will travel to famous places. They'll evoke utamakura in their poetry. They'll definitely write poetry. And the descriptions that they come up with are, to use a very Western term, I guess, kind of precious, right? Because they're just focusing on the utamakura. And in the late Meiji period, this is what the Japanese writers do. But the real crux of the matter to me was, how are they going to produce literature like that when there's no long-standing tradition? So, for example, they go to Paris and they don't have hundreds of years of previous Japanese poets going to Paris and producing poetry that they're going to riff on. So what are they going to do if they're going to produce these traditional travel literature pieces with the you know old poetry, things that go back centuries? What are they going to do? And the answer is they appropriate what Westerners thought of these places. So we think of Paris as maybe the city of lights, or we think of Paris as the home of Versailles. And we there are Westerners, and we think of Paris as sort of a center of art and all the different historical events that have happened there. And so the Japanese go and they write poetry about those historical events that Westerners all know, but the Japanese don't. And I find that absolutely fascinating. In some cases, they wrote not waka, but they wrote kanshi. They were writing Chinese poetry about historical events in Europe. And they're doing it for the Japanese audience. And so you mentioned there's these, in some cases, writers, other diplomats. The Iwakura Mission, of course, has this big diary that gets published in Japan to much acclaim. But when you're talking about writers going abroad and going to places like Paris, the one that comes to mind most immediately for me is Mori Ogai, of course, who goes to Germany and writes about some of his experiences there. So who are some of these specific writers that you're talking about? And then what are some of the writings that they're producing? Some of the early ones are probably not names that are going to be familiar to a broad audience, I focus on quite a lot of different people in my study, 
I'll just give you a couple names. One of the early people was named Nomura Fumio. He had a pseudonym also of Murata Fumio. And he traveled to England in 1864, uh, actually stayed there for four years, and then produced a work that is Seiyo Kenbundoku. A lot of these are, are works that end with that term Kenbundoku, in other words, something that I've seen and heard. So they're not works of fiction. They're meant to be accurate accounts. But some of them tell funny anecdotes. It's not dry observations all the time. Uh, some of them really get personal. So the diarist, I guess I would call him, the writer, the author, will tell us about different conversations that he has or different events that he sees or experiences and that kind of thing. There's another guy named Nakai Hiroshi, and he traveled abroad twice. He went to Paris in 1866, and then he went back to Japan, and then many late, many years later, he returned to, to England, actually, uh, that was 1874 through 1876. I like his work because while he's on the boat, remember, all these people are taking boats, they're not taking airplanes or anything, so the trip abroad takes quite a while. While he's on the boat, what he writes reminds me an awful lot about the sort of emotions that we see in traditional travel literature, like in, like in Tosaniki, like what Kinotsuri Yuki does. So here he is on the boat, and he's missing home, and he's looking out across the waves, and he's being very poetic about it, because that's what the travel experience is supposed to be in traditional Japan. And he's not to Europe yet. And then as soon as he steps off the boat, in Europe, the writing changes. It's a really different style. It's almost like an entirely different author because he's so overwhelmed by the culture that he sees. Let's see who else. Uh, Shibusawa Eiichi. Now there's a name that everybody knows. And of course, Shibusawa traveled to France in 1867 through 1868, and he was sponsored by the government. And he wrote a diary of his time, and he also wrote specifically about Paris. I think Shibusawa Eiichi, he's one of my heroes, he's really entertaining to read. He had a great sense of humor. He's got this wonderful description of the zoo that he visits. This is in Paris, and he says they have a hippopotamus, and he puts that in you know, sort of uh, brackets, because uh, he's a word he'd never heard of before. They have a hippopotamus that comes from southern Africa, and for which there's no comparison. He says it is an unsightly aquatic animal. It is large, <laughs> like an ox, has short fat legs, and the entire body is hairless. It has skin like a toad's, thick and extremely strong, and has, this is the best part, it has a big mouth, the sort that would come in use at the Gion Festival. <laughs> so he's, he's integrating the Japanese culture and, you know, what he's seeing, and he, he also has this great sense of humor, right? Now, you had mentioned Moriogai. Yes, of course, everybody, I think, also knows that Moriogai spent four years in Germany. But, you know, and he kept a diary, but he kept it in classical Chinese, I guess just because he wanted to and wanted to keep up his classical Chinese while he was in Germany. Uh, and I didn't find that it in any way added to the trends that I was seeing in travel literature. I don't think he meant it to be travel literature per mm. se. And Soseki, Natsume Soseki, he goes to England and he writes while he's there, but he's not really producing what I think of as travel literature. I keep saying travel literature, I'm thinking of the Japanese term kiko bungaku. So he writes The Tower of London, London no to, 
but and that's a historical work, but it's not really. I don't think even if you'd asked him at the time, is this Kiko Bungaku? I don't think he would have said it. It is right. Then when you get into the late Meiji period, we see a collection of different writers. Two other people I'll mention: Shimamura Hogetsu, who was a very well-known literary critic, not widely read today, but I think still relatively well known. He went to England and Germany in 1902 through 1905, and he attended Oxford, where he studied psychology. And he produces much more sort of, I guess, flowery literary work that also reminds me of the sort of thing that you might see in Tosa Diary. He writes, I'll give you a quick little snippet here. Then the steam whistle blew, and the bulk of the ship like a mountain, heeled a few yards. Many, lamenting the departure of the launches, waved handkerchiefs and hats in the sea breeze. Gradually, as we drew further away, the white handkerchiefs and hats grew smaller and smaller until they disappeared, and with a sigh, there were many who finally came back to their senses. And man, does that sound to me like Kinotsuriyuki when he's leaving the shore and he's leaving Tosa and he's going back to the capital. So that's what I mean by sort of very poetic approach. And then finally, the last one I'll mention is somebody I've done a lot of work on, and that is Anazaki Masaharu, who was a famous professor of the study of religions at Tokyo Imperial University. And he traveled abroad many times in his life, but two times in particular during which he wrote, and that was once in 1901 through 1903, and then the second time was in 1908. And he wrote book-length travel logs about both of those experiences, and I've translated those. I've made some annotated translations of those. What I really like about his stuff is that by his generation, when he went abroad, he really knew what he was seeing. He could appreciate the history behind everything that he saw, and he was equipped to create commentary and very sensitive commentary about it. And that's why I chose to translate those works. You're talking about some of these funny anecdotal stories in the travel diaries. I'm reminded of the one that I use in class frequently when talking about the 1860 embassy to the U.S. and Fukuzawa Yukichi writing about how they're at the reception and they see these strange things floating in the glasses. Turns out it's it's ice (laughs) and then he lights lights his sleeve on fire. Uh, but it really does make sense why these things would be so popular, as you mentioned. You know, these kenbunoku or the the tales of things that I've seen. Even the Iwakura diary was was called the Kaidonjiki. You know, the kind of the yeah. true tales of, of things of travels, and it makes sense. You know, at this time when there's a desire for so much information about what's going on outside of the world, that those things would get popular. But you mentioned too that some of these writers aren't quite as well known as the fiction writers like Solseki or Moriogai. Why is that? Does this as a genre kind of fade once the West becomes more known or just gets replaced by fiction or what's happening? I think it does fade as the West becomes much more accessible. And one of the other things that probably happens is that instead of relying on their fellow Japanese for information about the West, the Japanese begin to become fluent enough in Western languages that they can go to Western sources and read about that history in a way that they probably felt was 
going to be more accurate and more trustworthy than what their compatriots, whose language skills were sometimes kind of iffy, were telling them in those works. I'd also say that those anecdotal and really fun to read passages are not thick on the ground. So I think it was probably uh, another reason why the genre kind of disappears is that people think, yeah, you know, I, I don't want to slug through 300 pages to find a few gems in that collection. So one of the topics that's come up on several of the earlier podcast episodes is, you know, as much as we want to problematize this idea of national seclusion during the Tokugawa period, when we get into the early Meiji period, there does seem to be this sudden impulse to go abroad. And certainly it's first time in 250 years or so that people can travel abroad freely. And we do see a lot of people going abroad. What do you think is happening there? Why is it that now people are going abroad? I guess... Uh, the same reason they climb the mountain, because it's there and they can. <laughs> you know, at first, it's really financially hard to do that. But if you look at the numbers, there, there are published lists of everybody who traveled abroad in the Meiji period, for example. Uh, and if you graph it, you can see that at the very beginning, there just weren't that many people. And then as they became more financially capable, then the numbers increased. And I think also we shouldn't forget that domestic travel was a hot thing in the Tokugawa. At the beginning, there were all these restrictions and it was harder to do. But by the time you get to the end of the Tokugawa, most people aren't really feeling those restrictions. They've come up with a way to get around them. Um, and there was a whole domestic travel industry there. So the idea of traveling for leisure is not something that just appears boom on the scene with the Meiji period. The idea of traveling for leisure is very much a Tokugawa product. So I don't think it was much of a stretch for people in the Meiji to then take that idea of travel for leisure and expand it. And then, of course, there's those who travel for things like education and many of the students going abroad. And uh, one that I've come across in my own research kind of gets us into your part of New York. In fact, the civil engineer Haraguchi Kaname, who goes to study at Rensselaer Polytechnic, which is not too far away from you over in Troy. Mm-hmm. He was one of three or four Japanese at the time. You can find his master's thesis uh, on the RPI wow. uh, digital repository of theses. Wow. Wow. So he goes on from RPI to apprentice on the construction of the Brooklyn Bridge. And then he gets hired by the Pennsylvania Railway Company and designs branch line of the Pennsylvania Railway. And then he comes back to Tokyo and is hired as chief engineer of the city of Tokyo. And the documents always say it was some kind of obligation. And, And you mentioned before that in some cases, you know, the government would pay the students to go abroad. And I was wondering if you might have more insight on, did that come with an obligation that you would come back and do government service after a certain amount of time? Uh, Not that I know of, but I think there was an obligation to produce a report of some sort. And so they, you know, the Iwakura mission, obviously, that's probably the most famous one. But in a lot of these cases, the documents that I was looking at, I think were initially created because somebody asked for them. It's not until you get much later when people are traveling not for work and actually probably not even for being a student that you see these more artistic products. It's a very broad statement and I can already, as I was saying it, I could already think of exceptions to it. I'll just give you an example of a later one. Anazaki, so he, he produced these two 
book length, we're talking three, four hundred page things, about his travels in 1901 through 3 and 1908. And then the second one, 1908, he was sponsored by a French foundation, the Albert Kahn Foundation, which still is in existence. And at that point in 1908, it had just come into existence. Albert Kahn was a successful businessman in Paris. And he conceived of this fantastic notion of throwing money at fellows and saying, you can use this money to travel the world for an entire year. And when you're done, write it up for me. I just want to promote intercultural exchange. And Anazaki was one of the first scholars to do that. And so he was on the on this foundation's dime, and he was obligated to produce a report when it was all over, which he did. But the funny thing to me about it is that the report, until I translated it, only existed in Japanese. So I'm not sure what Khan thought he was actually accomplishing by paying for Anazaki's trip, but I'm okay with that because I really like the travelogue. Speaking of some of these local connections to research, I understand you're doing some research on Robert Prine, who yes. was United States minister resident to Japan after Townsend Harris. So another individual that people might not be too familiar with. So tell us about Robert Prine. Robert Prine was from Albany originally. And you're right, he took over from Townsend Harris. They crossed paths for just a couple days in Japan in 1862. So Harris actually steps down. If you look up his dates, it'll say he served as minister until 1861. So he steps down officially, but he's actually still in Japan. And then Prine arrives in early 1862. And he actually arrives with his son, and he stays in Japan until 1865. And he's a fascinating character because he's really quite different than Townsend Harris. Townsend Harris was a, I'm going to call him a career diplomat. And he had been in China before he went to Japan. And he was a bachelor. And not that he didn't care about the United States, but I think he very much saw himself as an expat. Sort of a permanent, relatively professional expat. Prine, on the other hand, Prine took the job, to be honest, he took the job because he, first of all, was friends with Seward, William Seward, who was the Secretary of State, and there was a gold and silver exchange situation in the international markets at the time that made it such that Prine knew he could take his stipend and capitalize on it. It was all legal. It was all above board, but capitalize on the exchange situation and pull himself out of debt. So he was in debt here in Albany. came from a pretty successful family, and I think the debt really weighed heavily on his mind. So the plan was that he was going to go to Japan, and he was going to stay until he could pull himself out of debt, and then he was going to return to the United States. And that's kind of what happened, although it wasn't quite so smooth. First, he gets to San Francisco, and he's traveling initially with two sons, and one of his sons contracts a disease. It might have been typhoid. It's unclear. But very sadly, he dies in San Francisco. 
And so Prine then continues on to Japan with his one remaining son, and his wife begs him to come home. But he says, I can't, because now I'm really in debt. He spent a lot of money on funeral expenses and things like that. And so he said, just let, just let me go to Japan, and, and I'll try and return as soon as I can. So he went to Japan, and meanwhile, you have to remember, this is 1862, so the Civil War in the United States is escalating. And I think Prine's worried if he takes his son home, his son might get conscripted. He does write to his wife in personal letters about paying somebody to take his son's place in the draft, things like that. And he gets embroiled in a fascinating event, and that is he picks up where Townsend Harris left off, and he negotiates with the Bakfu. Once he figures out that he should be negotiating with the Bakfu and not with the emperor, there's a whole long story there, too. But he negotiates with the Bakfu, and he agrees to sell the Bakfu three ships of war. And the Bakfu was really concerned about uprisings in Satsuman Choshu, of course, and they, they realized they needed to build their navy as quickly as they could. And uh, Prine showed up, and Prine said, yeah, sure, the, the Americans are going to sell you three boats. And that turns out to have been very, very difficult because of the Civil War, in part, and various intrigues that were going on in the United States. At one point, Seward said, no, you can't do that. And at another point, Abraham Lincoln said, no, you can't do that. A very long story short, eventually, Prine does manage to get one ship built here in the United States and delivered to Japan. The other two, that order is canceled. Prine finally gives up on waiting for the ship, and he returns to the United States a short period of time, just short of a year, before the one boat that was acquired arrives in Japan. So he he didn't really want to be there as long as he was, but he felt obligated because of this whole ship deal. He didn't want to leave until the ship had been delivered. Meanwhile, he also prided himself on being a very successful diplomat, a very successful minister. He writes to his wife that he's more appreciated and loved by the Japanese government than any of the other diplomats who are there. He also seems strangely blasé about the danger that his life may have been in as a foreigner in Japan at the time. There were plenty of assassinations and things like that going on. And at one point, the Bakfu really didn't want any foreigners in Edo. And so they managed to convince everybody to move to Kanagawa or Yokohama, except for Prine. And Prine said, no, I'm not going. I'm going to stay in Edo. It was good enough for Townsend Harris. It's good enough for me. And he just loved the idea of being the only diplomat who was allowed to stay in Edo. So he stays in Edo. And then shortly after that decision is made, I'm sure the Bakfu were trying to convince him, trying to convince him, trying to convince him to leave, right? But he didn't want to do it. And uh, shortly after that decision, he decided not to leave. The American legation was burned to the ground in a pretty obvious case of arson. And so he had no choice but to move to Kanagawa. Still, he would still write to his wife and he'd say he and his son would go out riding on uh, horseback riding every day. And they'd have this huge entourage of samurai who would accompany them. And he said to his wife, well, don't worry about me. I'm very prudent. At the same time that he's writing this, there are other foreigners who are going out horseback riding and being killed by errant samurai. By <laughs> I'm sure his wife must have been just beside herself uh, with all of that. 
You're absolutely right. I mean, the Richardson affair was 1864. So, I mean, there's a number yes. of, of foreign diplomats being assassinated all over Japan at the time. And, and he describes these things in his letters home in kind of gory detail. And then he's very quick to always write a <laughs> sentence, something like, but don't worry about me. I'm being very prudent. <laughs> In the letters that he writes back to his home, do we get any glimpses of you know, what we might think of as the coming restoration? Is there talk of, of this new kind of imperial loyalism or this new imperial faction that's coming onto the scene at the time? He seems to be very taken by whatever the Bakfu told him. So he refers to the prince of Choshu as a scoundrel and other other language like that, right? So he, he was clearly siding with the Bakfu. He never really learned Japanese. He had a translator, a man named Anton Portman, who apparently spoke some Japanese. So he, was, he certainly spoke Dutch. He was Dutch-born, American naturalized citizen. But I think there was a whole lot of linguistic confusion going on there. And by the end of his stay, Prine had really lost patience with it. He doesn't say too much about the coming restoration. I don't think he sees it quite that way. And I wonder if some of that might not have been a result of the United States going through its own civil war. So there's sort of a funny moment in which Prine, he says to his wife in a letter, I never talk about the war, the civil war is what he means. I never talk about this, the war with anyone here unless they specifically ask me. And he was clearly trying to keep the American dirty laundry uh, under wraps. It was embarrassing that the war escalated because when Prime left the, the U.S., he didn't expect that to happen. Nobody did, right? But it certainly did. And he worried that if the Japanese knew the extent of the American Civil War, that they wouldn't respect the United States and he would lose his clout as a diplomat. At the same time, the Japanese are trying to hide their dirty laundry. And so, and, you know, it's the same thing. We've got a, this brewing civil war on our hands, and we don't want the foreigners to know too much about it. And they were really, the Japanese were worried about that, not just for reputation, but this is something that I hadn't, I just hadn't attended to. I'm sure many people know this, but I hadn't attended to the fact that one of the things that diplomats like Prine did was insist on indemnities. So, the, you know, the Richardson affair happens and suddenly there's all this insistence on indemnities. The Shimonoseki affair happens and there's this insistence on indemnities. And it was kind of heavy handed. The sums that they asked of the Japanese government were not small. Sometimes they would pull a bait and switch. So they'd say, oh, this something happened. We want you to pay X amount of dollars in an indemnity, or as an alternative, you could open another treaty port. <laughs> there, there was a lot of weird stuff going on then. The Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening. 